Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. My name is Adriel, and I am so excited for today's episode because our guest today is Scott Lees. Uh, Scott is probably one of the coolest people I've ever spoken with. Uh, Scott is a former professional athlete who has spent most of his career uh, after the sports thing in early stage sales. And he made a conscientious decision to be the very, very best at it. And we talk about what being the best at early stage sales means, how he thinks about it, why he didn't want to grow into larger companies, and how he kind of found his own fit as somebody in that earlier stage. And there's two reasons I especially love this interview. I suppose three if you count Scott's coolness, hoping it might rub off on me, but we'll see. Uh, The first reason is that we disagree a lot. Even in the very beginning, you'll find that I mentioned something that I believe, and right away Scott says, well, you know, maybe I don't totally agree with you on that philosophy. And we go back and forth about the pros and the cons of different strategies, and this happens three or four times in this episode. When it happens, I love it because it pushes me to think differently. And uh, as a listener, I hope you get to enjoy hearing both sides of things and not necessarily picking sides, but perhaps even finding a third side that we haven't thought of. And if you've got any ideas about where Scott, or where you agree more with Scott, where you agree more with myself, or where there's a third solution we didn't even think about, uh, go ahead and tweet me at alubarski2 and let's have a conversation. Well, the second reason uh, that I love this episode is because we talk about something I've never really spoken about before on any episode or any public environment. Um, and it's something that Scott and I shared in common, and it's something that many people have been through, but it's very difficult to talk about. And it's a near-death experience, and what that what that means for making decisions, uh, what that means for spending, choosing how we spend our time, and why each of us, for our own different challenges and our, through our own different processes, decided to go into early stage sales. Uh, for me. I've been in some two very, very bad car accidents. Uh, the first, when I was a little kid, about five or six years old, put me in a coma. Um, the second, I was 18 years old, and I broke multiple vertebrae in my neck. And that, those experiences were incredibly difficult, especially when I was older, incredibly difficult with residual pains, but it has a very, very direct impact of bringing me into the self-driving car space and being probably the most passionate spokesperson for what self-driving cars can do because I've felt what drivers can do and I, I understand where the gaps are and where the potential is and I am the biggest cheerleader for this technology because of that. Now Scott has a, a different story but a similar thought process. Uh, Scott will tell you all about how he spent his own uh, four years of his 20s in the hospital really, really on the brink of it and what happened after he got out of that and how he approaches decisions having done that. Uh, we get pretty uh, personal. Um, so first time I've opened up like this, uh, so I, I hope you guys enjoy. Uh, Scott, so let's talk a little bit about, about Scott, who he is. Scott has been a VP of sales at six different companies, taking five of them to more than $20 million in ARR or annual recurring revenue in under three years. So basically, he crushed it. 
Uh, He's done quite well in that super, super early stage. Scott is also the founder of an awesome-sounding conference called Surf and Sales. Uh, It's a micro-conference bringing people together to learn about sales while in a fun, interactive surfing environment. Uh, And Scott is also the author of this awesome must-read book, Addicted to the Process, which for anybody doing this for the first time in the early stage uh, can be really, really helpful. Scott is smart. He's fun. Uh, He really knows how to talk about challenging topics, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Scott Lease. All right, Scott Lease, welcome to the gong. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, we're all set up. Austin, a Burlingame connection. Uh, we're going to have ourselves a nice time today. Uh, where, where I wanted to start, um, you know, from the context, that, as I mentioned just before we got started, really excited to talk to you because you, as, as you put it yourself, really specialize in bringing things from zero, from pre-products, pre-revenue, all the way through those early stages. And, and those are the kind of lessons that I want to get out here. But I want to start with a certain mentality that it seems that you have, that you write about a lot, speak about a lot. This like, I'll talk to anybody, no matter what uh, mentality. And it goes a long way in sales. Um, it talks a lot about scrappiness. And it seems like you've done that to definitely get yourself certain jobs as a leader and, and probably also in sales at these early companies. So can you tell a few of those stories of, of where that I'll talk to anybody, no matter what, no ego mentality comes from? Well, you know, it, it's funny you bring that up because I, I just had one of those conversations yesterday, actually. Uh, <clears throat> this guy in Austin reached out to me and, and just didn't really have much of an agenda, just said he'd been following me for a while and, and kind of wanted to chat and get some advice. So. I said, sure. You know, so I met him down, down the road and we were just talking and turns out, you know, he's about to take on his first VP of sales gig. And, you know, he didn't know that I had kind of left and gone into consulting and advising full time. And now he's, you know, thinking, well, when he gets this gig, he's going to try to bring me on and, and kind of help him. So it, it, it all kind of comes from, I feel like you never really know who can help you and you never really know who you're going to be able to help. So I really tried earlier in my career and even now to just um, be open to any and all conversations. Um, I can remember not quite 10 years ago, maybe now, um, you know, a friend of a friend had heard about a open sales gig at a, a small brand new company called main street hub. And they were looking for an entry-level sales rep. And I had been, you know, VP of sales multiple times already. But I took the, the meeting and exchanged some emails and drove into San Francisco. And, you know, over the course of the conversation, you know, kind of let it be known that I wasn't an entry-level, you know, salesperson, wasn't looking for that kind of role. And just kind of, you know, explained how I thought about growth and scaling orgs and you know, lo and behold, like I, I ended up becoming the VP of sales there. And that's probably the most powerful story I think that I can, that I can reveal about, about this particular topic. <clears throat> you know, I, I would never have ended up the VP of sales at Main Street Hub if I hadn't been willing to meet with them about an entry level sales position. 
so I've just always tried to keep an, an open mind and open mentality. Like I'll, I'll have a conversation and talk to anybody because I might be able to help them. They might be able to help me. And if, if it doesn't go anywhere, so what, you know, took a swing, took an at bat and, um, you know, hopefully both parties are a little bit better for it. How does that balance for you when it actually comes to the sales uh, aspects of it? Because, you know, for all, all that is very true. Obviously, every conversation, you're nowhere going to lead. But if you take every single conversation that comes in, oftentimes you're going to be so distracted from the crucial sales that you're going after or, or the key accounts that you really want to target that you might get distracted. I'll give a, I mean, a specific example. Almost every day, folks, or especially a year ago, um, you know, in our self-driving car business, when we were really coming out, a lot of small businesses were reaching out and they were very well-meaning and they were reaching out and saying, hey, we would love to have a self-driving car delivered for our pizza shop or delivered for our, our liquor store, things like that. And they just thought it was cool. In the beginning, I took all those calls. Partially, I was interested. Partially, I was excited. And partially, it was. You never know where it's going to lead. But pretty quickly, there's a pattern there that that's just not the customer that we can help in the beginning and that it's a distraction. So when you think about you have the world of available options, but really you probably want your SDRs, for example, the people working for you to be focused on certain accounts. How do you balance that? You don't know who you can help or who can help you versus sometimes you got to say no to conversations. Well, I might have a different philosophy than you because I don't know that I say no to those conversations and I don't know that I see those as a distraction. I, I think the difference is knowing when something is not a fit for right now. Right. So you had these conversations with these small companies. Um, and for me, at least, rather than seeing that as a distraction, I think my job and why we try to preach this to my team would be to recognize really quickly that these folks are not going to be a good fit right now. But learn a little bit about their business, inform them a little bit about you and let's stay in touch in the future, because some of those small companies might grow into midsize and larger companies. And it's been my experience that if you treat them appropriately with respect and, and dignity and, 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 you know, the idea that they might be able to grow into the right customer for you, they'll come back and, and they remember that, you know, that relationship and that kind of uh, loyalty. So I think maybe for me is the difference might be, you know, I might not spend two, three, four phone calls with that person, or I might not spend an hour and a half with that person, but I certainly don't see spending 10 or 15 minutes um, as a waste. Um, and, you know, that might be a little bit different mentality than exists out there in the, in the selling world in the marketplace right now. Um, and maybe that comes from, you know, some of my background and being in the game for 15 plus years now. And maybe my mindset and, and mentality is a little different than, than other people. But that, that's kind of how I think about it. So I, I think we're a little bit dissimilar. Um, but I understand where you're coming from. I just think I amend it a little bit. Yeah, I, I, well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Different philosophies are kind of the whole point of the thing. Do you have any stories from your experience doing things like that where you can tie sort of a conversation that perhaps I would have dismissed or somebody yeah. else might not have seen value out of? And you can tie that to then kind of a sales or, or a partnership that you're really proud of? Yeah, 100%. I mean, we, we would talk to companies um, – at Qualio, uh, which is the most recent company that I, I was working at. Um, and you know, they, these title companies or small law practices, um, would be kind of just getting started or 
you know, they might tell us, hey, we're going out on our own here in a couple months. And we would say to them, well, you know, we can't work with you yet. You're not doing quite enough business or you're not, you know, uh, licensed or approved yet or whatever. So we can't get you started on the, on the software. But me taking the time to have that conversation with them, you know, be informative, be helpful, and, you know, just kind of stay and promise to stay in touch with them a little bit. Those people end up coming back and some of those customers would come back and already be significantly ahead of the game. Like they'd move from, you know, like a basic sized account to like a premium account, like right away. Um, and, I, you know, I think, I think if we would have dismissed them too fast, they might have been more willing or, or, or more likely to, you know, look elsewhere. But I think instead, they, were, they felt like the first conversation went good. These guys were straight up with me. They said, you know, it's not going to make sense for me yet. Wait till you get to this size, then we'll really be able to help you. And I think that that maybe uh, created a, a level of trust that helped bring those people back back on board later on when they're ready. And now they're now they're customers. Yeah, you spent like 15 years in the Bay Area and have spent uh, much of your career working as a VP of sales or higher in traditional tech companies, a lot of SaaS companies. And then you left. Now you're now you're in Austin and uh, even our pre-conversation, like, ah, glad to be done with the Bay Area. Are there any other philosophies that you think do that you did see a lot that are pretty prevalent uh, throughout traditional tech sales models that you disagreed with or that you noticed and decided to, to veer away from? That's a really good question. Um, well, <clears throat> yes, is the short answer. The, the first one that jumps to my mind is that you have to balance your sales career out in all types of sales cycles and disciplines and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, you might get your... A traditional path might be, you know, you started off in retail sales, okay? And then you're working in like the, uh, you know, the, the kiosk and selling cell phone cases and stuff. Then you move into inside sales and it's like inbound. Then you move into, you know, SDR and then you're in transactional sales. And then you move mid-market and then you move to enterprise. And I, I didn't do any of that. You know, I, I had those thoughts and... I wish I could remember who gave me this advice. I truly don't. But um, somebody said to me, you know, you're really good at this one thing. Why don't you just become the best ever or the best, you know, around at that one particular thing? And, you know, for me personally, I had been taking companies, you know, from zero to 20, zero to 25 million ARR. And I was starting to get the itch to, to you know, well, maybe I should get some experience under my belt taking company from, you know, 50 to a hundred million ARR, right? Because I don't seem to be getting those kind of interviews or those kind of phone calls. Um, and, and this advice that I got was like, why, why, like, why mess with that? Right. You know, you don't have anything to prove, just be like the best early stage builder that there is, you know? And so, and so I, I did that. And, and that, became my my niche and you know that's my niche now as a as a consultant and, a, and an advisor so i think that's very counter to the advice that a lot of people um a lot of people get you know yeah you often actually see that happen a lot in venture capital as well 
where the only reason anybody, any venture capitalist raises a seed round is so that eventually, or around a small $2 million fund that they do seed investment with, is so eventually they can raise a $100 million round that they can do Series A investment with. And the only reason that they're doing that is so that they can get to a billion dollar fund in which they can write big checks with. And, and very few people, partially because that's how the business is structured, partially because that's where incentives comes from, and probably because of ego, uh, yeah. but many people want to grow into bigger and bigger positions and it sounds like where you built your careers really around saying well here's here's this thing i like here's this thing i like to do and, and here's this thing i'm going to keep doing yeah and you know and and there's something to be said for you know kind of trying to become an expert in 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 something rather than you know pretty good at lots of things right pretty good at lots of things great at nothing i don't know you know that 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 became less appealing to me uh, over time. And so, you know, I, I really, for me, I think I think about those kind of things uh, a little bit differently, you know? How did your expertise develop? So you've been a, a VP or higher of sales at six different companies now. Um, I think at least five of them have gotten to at least $20 million in ARR within just a couple of years. So you got these things under your belt. What do you remember doing very differently at your sixth company than at your first company? Oh man, so many different things. Um, the first hire. So the first hire at my sixth company was a head of sales ops. Absolutely essential. Um, you know, back in the day when I was first getting started, there was no such thing as sales ops or sales enablement. It just did, it didn't even exist. You know, I mean, I guess some of the functions existed, but that, that job title and that role didn't exist. This was just all additional shit that, you know, I had to do. Right. And in time I, I started lobbying more and more for that type of role sooner and, you know, earlier and earlier in the growth of the company. And, you know, now I guess 2016 was when I started at, at Qualia. Now, you know, the, the value uh, is there from founders and, and the market, it's like, yes, yes, that can be your, you know, first hire, right? That's, that's, that's one, one big, big, you know, difference. And, and, and I've talked to a lot of people who, you know, have, have done similar roles to me and, and they don't, they don't operate like that. You know, if I was going to go back to a full-time operating role now, like there's no way that I take a gig that doesn't value enablement and ops like straight away. Like I, I, I look at it as like, I need them in order to do my role better and to move faster. I don't need to be spending my time building out workflows and reports and all these kind of things. I know exactly what I need. So I'm going to have this expert in it who loves doing it, by the way, work on that stuff while I'm head down working with a couple AEs trying to nail the messaging, the pitch, the competitive landscape, all the objections all the collateral, right? All this kind of stuff. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that that has allowed me to move a little faster. You know, like you said, you know, five of the six companies that, that I was at all reached that milestone in under three years, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't know that that's a, a coincidence. And so what happens when you reach that milestone? Do you decide it's time for you to leave? Do you help hire the new VP who's going to take them from 20 to 50? Yeah. So that, that ties really well back into the last question you asked me, which is like, kind of, what did you do differently? You know, in, in, in the beginning of my career, I would leave 
And I, I, I guess naively would just expect things to continue running smoothly with whoever was brought in after me. Um, and you know, it, it never worked that way. Um, and so, you know, now, um, you know, most recently I brought somebody in that I know and trust, and I'm even friends with on a personal level to take over and kind of keep the ship sailing straight. So that, that's a big, a big change and a, and a big difference, you know, why, but you know, why do I leave? I mean, it's, it's, I like building things, man. I like being at the very beginning and being scrapped. You know, I, I once described it as like, um, the difference between like the Ramones and, and Motley Crue, right? It's like, I am the Ramones. Like I want to play in like a shitty dive bar, right? With like 10 people in the audience and the place stinks. Like I don't, I'm not a hairband, man. I'm not corporate, right? I don't want to be there when there's 500, you know, a thousand people and a million pieces of red tape and process. That's just like not my scene. You know, and so I, I've always just like, you know, year one is is a blast. You know, people usually leave you alone and, you know, trust that you know what you're doing and you're a hero. And then year two, you know, the pressure increases a little bit and they've been watching you and they start to think that, you know, they know what to do just as well as you. And then, you know, I, I start to get a little like antsy. And by year three, I'm just sort of like, what am I doing here still? You know, like I got to get to this particular milestone and then, you know, I've done what I came here to do. And, you know, I, I have operated very differently than a lot of people with my career in that particular regard. You know, that, that is, again, I think that's advice that is counterintuitive that a lot of people don't get. I think people tell you, stick around, stick it out. You know, you learn so much in year five and year seven and year 10. Nah, I'm not going to play the game the way that everybody wants me to play the game. You know, I, I'm, if I'm a gambler, I'm not putting all my chips on, on one number on the roulette table. I'm going to spread it around a little bit. And, uh, you know, I, I, for me, that's, that's, that's been a good thing. I don't know if that's the right thing for everybody, but for me, it's worked well. Yeah, you're like, a, like an assassin brought in for three years and then uh, <laughs> and I got to send off for somebody not so rogue. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> So tell me about the first year, you know, you mentioned scrappiness, you mentioned there's no one looking over your shoulder to tell you what to do. I uh, would love to hear an example from one of the first years that you are particularly proud of where scrappiness came in and, and where your first, uh, we'll start with kind of products and I'll move into where your first sales came from, but where your first interactions with early stage products come in and, and some specific stories about how you helped develop what the product uh, should look like. Well, you know, the scrappiness, I think the scrappiness comes from, <clears throat> from your, your mentality. And, you know, all of us have a mentality and <clears throat> it's been influenced by things that we've been through in, uh, in our lives, you know, and um, I have for a very, very long time since I was young, had a bit of a chip on my shoulder and, you know, this kind of attitude of, oh, you don't think that I can do that? Well, now I'm, I'm really... I'm really motivated to go do it. You know, I, I grew up in a, a fairly small town in very Northern California and I was a really good athlete. And, you know, the, the, the sort of saying was that nobody would recruit in Northern California North of Sacramento. And so that was something that, you know, I kind of rebelled against. Um, I had opportunities to play 
a single uh, sport in college uh, at a D1 level. Instead of doing that, I went to a D2 school on purpose just because I wanted to play two sports. So there's these things that like, you know, I've, I've been through in my life, like I said, that, you know, I've sort of felt like somebody was telling me, nah, you're not gonna be able to do that. And I'm like, well, fuck you. I, I can, I can do it. I can find a way around it. Right. And then, you know, it's well documented. And some of the listeners, if they know me, have, have heard this before, but you know, when I was 23 years old, I got extremely sick and I spent the better part of the next four years in the hospital, uh, fighting for my life. And I've had God knows how many surgeries and, you know, it's, life-changing forever um, illness and you know that illness led to opioid addiction and you know so I've like I've been through the ringer right and, and you don't go through that kind of thing um, unscathed and, and and if you come out the other end you know hopefully you have the kind of m mindset and mentality that's like well I just went through the hardest thing I'm probably ever going to go through in my life so I really don't have anything left to be afraid of, right? And if I can fight, scratch, and claw through that, how hard is it to pick up the phone, right? How hard is it to get told no 100 times a day? How hard is it to spend 12 hours in the office? How hard is it even to come in on a Saturday, right? How hard is it to stand up and try to teach people and motivate people and inspire people? All of these things are like a gift, right? And so I, I think that my sense of appreciation for every opportunity, um, you know, was really developed somewhat younger than, than a lot of people in their career. You know, I, I didn't get started in my career until I was 27, but I think once I got started, I didn't have a 27 year old's, you know, mindset. I was ready to go. And, you know, that, that kind of mindset and willingness to get your hands dirty and kind of outwork everyone and prove people wrong. I think that that's a perfect match for the the very early stage, you know, mindset and mentality and, and, and growth that, that you're looking for. You, you can't go be an effective head of sales or VP of sales at a company that has, you know, 100K of ARR if all you want to do is look at spreadsheets all day long and, and, and Salesforce reports. It just doesn't work that way. So I, I think, you know, a lot of it just really has to do with your mindset. There's a lot. Thank you for sharing. Uh, there, there's a lot to unpack there. I suppose my first question that's sort of been sitting with me since I first heard your story is that oftentimes when you hear a story like that, you know, some young person, very healthy, all of a sudden gets sick, spends four years fighting for their life, battles drug addiction. These things, of course, change the way people spend the rest of their lives. I mean, you might say somebody gets uh, has a heart attack barely survives all of a sudden loses 100 pounds becomes a fitness coach it's tied to that my own story is that i've been in a couple of car accidents one put me in a coma another one broke two of my vertebrae now i am very passionately working on self-driving cars where what decisions have you made about how to spend the rest of your life and career that stem from this dark challenging four-year period I'm really glad you you brought that up and and thanks for sharing you know your story as well you know um i I just always felt like I got given you know kind of a second third fourth fifth fifth chance if you will and i have 
consciously worked to try to provide similar opportunities to other people uh, in, in, in these kind of situations. I mean, I have hired, I can't even tell you how many people with criminal records. Uh, I can't, so many people with, you know, addiction issues and substance abuse issues or, you know, people who had no sales experience whatsoever, but I sort of saw, you know, something in, in them, right. That, that, um, you know, made me want to help them. And I, I think honestly, I have continued to go into some of these roles because I genuinely feel like if I can make a difference in somebody's life and, and, and help them change their life in, in the way that I've been able to do, you know, for my, for myself, um, that is a legacy and, and that is more important than, you know, how much money I made or whatever. It's how, how many people have I, have I helped along the way? What kind of impact have I had on these people? Right. You know, if you're able to make an impact, uh, you know, with self-driving cars and eliminate accidents and injuries and, and deaths and the toll it takes on, you know, communities and all this kind of, I mean, that's a, that's a legacy, man. That's a very powerful, powerful thing. Um, and so, you know, I think it takes a special person to go through trauma, right. And, and, and find a way to make it a positive and find a way to help other people who've also experienced that kind of thing, find their way through. And, 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 and then, you know, they can kind of pay it forward if you will. Right. Yeah. You seem, uh, whether because of this experience or perhaps just because of who you are a, uh, brutally honest person. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. Uh, uh, both, to your, <laughs> both to yourself and, and just to the world at large. Um, when you, when you're at a startup, uh, you know, of course, when you're talking to a client, it's, it's about selling the dream and here's what we can do for you now, but also here's what we can do for you in a couple of years. If you'll just come along for this ride with us, because the product we have for you today is only a small part of what our vision is for how we're going to absolutely influence what you do. And sharing that vision uh, can be a challenge. Sharing that vision can be just a challenge of being eloquent or thoughtful about how you're sharing it, sharing it in the right words. But oftentimes sharing that vision, I find in my experience can be a challenge because you need to balance, or we as, as the lead salesperson need to balance the reality of what our clients are going to receive today with all the many bugs and defects and challenges, but good intent and good heart versus what we're going to bring to them tomorrow. So how do you think about how to either when you train your own account executives or when you have conversations with clients, where you strike that balance between uh, hi, Mrs. Clients, we have this product that's, it's going to be great someday. It's pretty good right now. It's going to be great someday. And here's why you should come along for this ride with us. Well, here's some of my brutal honesty. I, I, I don't really sell the dream like that when it comes to the product. And I really try not to have my account executives talk about what the product will be in the future. I try to focus on what it is right now. And, you know, even more specifically than that, I, controversial or not, like, I don't know that I really care about a lot of the product. Right, I care about what is the problem that this prospect or this potential customer is experiencing right now. What what is the what is the pain that they're going through? 
And, you know, why is it important to fix that? And, and, and how do I convey the sense of urgency required for them to take action, you know, now or sooner rather than later? And, and you know, kind of then and only then am I really, am I really getting down to talking about what my product does? And I think, you know, this goes back to, you know, another lesson learned and kind of how I operate with company six versus company two or threes. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to promise the moon. I, I'm not going to say we're going to be these things in the future. So you should buy me, you know, my product now. It's, this is who we are. I think it, you know, it solves a meaningful problem and pain point that you're experiencing. I think it's important to do that. And, you know, we're kind of obviously just getting started more and more, um, you know, clients are kind of coming on board and, and we're going to get better. Sure. But you're not, you're not making a purchase for what I'm going to be in 2021. You're making a, a purchase today, hopefully, um, for what we can do for you and your business, you know, right now. Now, do you, do you find yourself, um, one of my favorite kind of models in, in this, uh, in early stage sales is in crossing the chasm where they talk about the adoption curve and you've got your innovators and other ones who are willing to put up with the bugs or try something new, the early adopters come afterwards. And of course, you know, any model is, is only 60% or 70% uh, of, of actual reality. But in early stage sales, you've got to, or I believe you often need to try to seek out those more innovative, more early adopter folks who are willing to take those risks. And if you speak to 20 clients, all of whom on paper seem to be a perfect fit for what you're trying to sell, uh, maybe only four or five of them are really going to take that risk with you. Do you have a way to uh, siphon out who the more uh, risk-prone people are who like working with startups versus those who just want to keep a finger on the pulse of what's going on and who are just never going to buy your, your early-stage solution anyway? Well. I wish I had a better answer for you. I, I don't know that I have a phenomenal way to siphon those out other than, you know, just really listening and paying attention during the course of these selling conversations. You know, um, I think you're right. If, if you talk to 20, 20 people, there's probably three or four early adopters. You know, um, I think for me, I really try to listen to the enthusiasm in somebody's, you know, voice and how they're talking about their business and, you know, their grasping of the problem that my solution might solve, um, the volume of, of questions, the, the response time back over, you know, email or, um, you know, setting the next kind of appointment, that kind of thing, you know, if, when they're responding with, what feels like some enthusiasm and urgency on their own. I think that that's a, a pretty big indicator. You know, the people who, some of this maybe feels obvious, but the people who kind of, you know, miss or reschedule appointments or, you know, push, push it out a little bit more, or, you know, told you that they were going to get answers to these couple questions back to you and they didn't get them back to you right away. They had to remind somebody, right. Um, though, those are more, indicative of tire kicker type personalities. Right. Um, but again, like I don't, I don't necessarily spend less time on those people because I just assume those people are going to eventually become clients of mine. Anyways, I just really don't care 
that if they buy right now or not, because hopefully I've built a, a large enough pipeline that these early adopter types are going to close. And then I can just work the other opportunities and, you know, the kind of drip and nurture campaigns and, and whatnot. Um, and, you know, but one of the philosophies that I've always had going in early is we're not going to go after the whales right now. You know, I, I think it's a big, big mistake when you're an early stage orb to start trying to take swing at the largest potential clients in, in your space. Um, I, I like getting wins under our belt. I like proving out the sales pitch and sales process. I like getting more refined collateral. I, I like making sure our customer success and our onboarding uh, you know, process is, is, is tight and effective. I like getting case studies and testimonials and, and sort of like slowly building momentum by the, so by the time I go after the larger customers are like, Oh, I know who you, who you guys are. I've, I've been hearing about you guys for, for a while now. Right. Um, so I, I like getting the, the little wins. I, I think they're, they're very, they're very important to, the momentum and the growth of the, the early stage organization. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I think selling to a large company is so, so different uh, than it is selling to a, you know, selling to a big whale is very different than selling to the small fish. They ask for different things. They require. I mean, how, many, how many startups can you think of that, you know, um, started trying to go after distribution and went to sign million dollar deals, right? And like nine, 12, 16 months in, they haven't closed anything yet and they're like running on fumes now. Right. And it's not even necessarily because the product is no good. It might not even because the salesmanship is, is poor. It's just like you went after the wrong customers, man. You know, you're, you're in a longer sales cycle than you, than you thought. And you haven't learned enough from all these other people using the product potentially to figure out, well, what things do we need to tweak? What features do we need to add? How do we need to change the product to be more appealing for mid and, and upper market uh, folks? It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a mistake that I wish, you know, less people made. And so part of that mistake, and I, I want to wrap this up here, and this is, I think you've made a perfect transition. Part of that mistake comes down to the salesperson doing something wrong, maybe an experience, maybe in over their heads. But oftentimes, so often I've seen that mistake come from the actual founder of the CEO. Yeah. Because yeah. they say, oh, we're going to nail it. Like, we built something that the biggest are going to want. Let's sell a million of these. Let's be sold out by the end of the year. Let's look ahead. You've now worked with six different companies. There's a post of yours I really like on LinkedIn where you talked about deciding whether or not to be the CEO or to be that sales leader that CEOs can rely on, the different risk factor that you're taking with that career choice. But you have either as your VP of sales role work with six different CEOs and now in your consulting job work with many and advise many. What lesson would you wish that any CEO had before they came to talk to you? And then what kind of leadership do you like to work with? What kind of leadership, what values do you think a leader needs to have for you to be able to do your best work? Whew, loaded question. Um, let's, uh, let's make some enemies here, Scott. <laughs> Loaded questions. Uh, man, you know, back, if I rewind the tape about 30 seconds, you know, you, you were saying how, you know, some of that, 
issue is that the founder, you know, gave instruction to go after the larger kind of accounts, right? And and the problem is then the salesperson or the the head of sales is the one that whose head falls on the axe, you know, um, and, and and we get all the the blame for it. And you know, sometimes we're just following orders and instructions, right? It's like you told me to run up the hill, and now you're mad I got shot. Okay, <laughs> you know, um, so I I think that I think that founders should. You know, you're bringing in a head of sales for a reason, in theory. The reason being you need somebody who's an expert in, in not just selling, but building and scaling a team and recruiting a team and, and the strategy around all these things. So, you know, if you were an expert in that yourself, you might not need to hire somebody like me. So, you know, I, w- I wish there was a... a larger degree of trust right and and open kind of communication you know i am not a yes man at all anybody you know all of my ceos um and cfos would probably tell you that same thing so i push back a lot uh i have found the more conversations i have that that is a you know i don't want to say rare but um it's a little more uncommon than you would think. Uh, a, a lot of VPs and heads of sales just kind of take it and they get, they end up signing themselves up for, you know, outrageous goals and, you know, strategies that um, are potentially less than ideal or, or just not accurate at all. <clears throat> so I wish founders, you know, gave a little more trust and a little more power and a little longer runway to you know folks like me who who they're placing in those kind of kind of roles um and this is a little bit off topic but i would really love to see a trend where um more people who have been heads of sales become founders of these tech companies um you know, engineers and mbas and finance guys and private equity guys uh, you know, they think and operate very differently than salespeople do. And, um, you know, there are so many orgs where engineering and product is, you know, rightfully very, very respected. But unfortunately, that same level of respect um, is not given to people in the sales role. Um, you know, one I have often said that one of my biggest regrets is, you know, I've never worked for a CEO that used to have my job, right? And um, you know, if I could do it all over again and rewind the tape, that might be something that I that I really look for. You know, so <clears throat> hopefully, you know, more people, um, you know, who have done my role, kind of step up and and have the opportunity to to build something um, because I think it makes I think it can make a difference in the lives of of sales leaders and salespeople to 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 work in in that type of of company that might understand our culture and our needs a little better. Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I wonder what it would be like to work for somebody who's, who's had this job before. If only yeah. one day I'll work for you, Scott, it'll be, it'll, <laughs> it'll be a blast. We'll see. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, I want to move on to a quick uh, fire round here. I'll ask All the right. questions quickly and you could take your sweet time answering them if you want. 
I'll try um, to go fast as well. <laughs> Are there any sales or startup books that have been particularly helpful to you? Um, I don't know if it's a sales book, but you know, I, I recently told somebody that the book, the 48 laws of power by Robert Green, like made a huge impact, uh, on me and in my sales career. Um, and just my career in general. Um, I hate to plug my own book, but, um, you know, my, I wrote a book called addicted to the process that is specifically built for people who are early in their career. Uh, and, and who are trying to figure out the mindset and the work ethic and the habits needed to be successful. Um, I, I wrote that because I felt like nobody had kind of written anything specifically for that underserved market. So, you know, if there's early, if there's people who are early in their career out there, I think that that could be good. And, uh, you know, as far as startups go, I really like these sort of collection of stories about startups books. So there's a book called founders at work that I thought was really cool. Um, the hard thing about hard things. A lot of people probably know, but that I felt was really, really a good one. Um, but my, my favorite, you know, book about startups, I think it's founders at work is sort of like a collection of, I can't remember 25 or maybe even 50 different startup, uh, leaders who are kind of, telling stories about the early days of their, their companies. And, you know, most of these companies went on to be really successful and you're just like, Holy shit, that company was fucked up in the beginning. Right. And they made their way out of it. Right? Kind of gives you hope that, um, you know, if they figured it out, maybe you can too. Uh, yeah. A couple of those books, the ones I, I have read sometimes need a few rereads. Uh, 48 laws of powers is one yeah. where like, I mean, he's so tripping. He's talking about how Cleopatra deceived right. Mark Anthony. I'm like, I don't know if this applies to me now, but maybe, yeah. uh, maybe it will soon. Um, Founders at Work, I have not read, and I, I very much look forward to it. I just put it on my list. Nice. Um, what is the sale you are most proud of landing? Is there any particular partnership deal or sale you've closed that, you, that you're very proud of? I feel like I should say my wife. <laughs> Somebody's <laughs> answered that before. That's a good answer. <laughs> uh, Deal or, or partnership deal? Yeah. Um, I mean, we just recently announced uh, a deal at Qualia with Iowa Title Guarantee, and it was a, a very long sales cycle, very, very complicated process. Uh, full disclosure, I was not the lead salesperson on it, but, you know, w one of my team members was, and I'm very proud of the way that he handled the process and, you know, how we all collaborated as a, as a company, um, to get that deal done, uh, is, is a really big deal for the company. Yeah. Uh, tell me about an early sales mentor of yours and something you learned from them. You know, um, there is, uh, a guy named Mike Lindstrom out of Scottsdale, Arizona, who has been a motivational speaker and a sales trainer and whatnot for, for quite a while now. And, um, he was brought in at the first company that I was ever working at. And, um, you know, I, I liked the way he thought about things and he, you know, this one quote of his really stuck with me and it's, you know, nothing in life means anything other than the meaning you give it. Um, and I, I find myself often, you know, remembering that and trying to apply it once again to my life and, I find myself using it when I'm giving advice to other people. Um, 
and you know, he, he, we didn't work together for very long or all that closely, but if I could pinpoint somebody whose kind of words, uh, <clears throat> and way of being influenced me early in my career, he would be the one. Awesome. Uh, Scott, it has been an absolute pleasure both agreeing and disagreeing with you over the last hour or so. Um, if you want to learn more about uh, your work, what you're doing, what, you, what you're working on now, your book, where can they go and learn more? Yeah, uh, working on a few different things. So, you know, um, you can read about my consulting business. The website scottleesconsulting.com. Uh, I specialize in working with founders who are trying to go from zero to 25 million. Uh, I also am the founder of a small micro sales conference called Surf and Sales. Website is surfandsales.com. We're going on our fourth event coming up uh, this February. Um, and, you know, my, my book, Addicted to the Process, is, is on Amazon. You can check that out. I'm extremely active on LinkedIn. Uh, I will respond to you if you reach out to me and send me a message. Uh, so those are the best ways to get in touch with me and, you know, Sometime next year, I'll be dropping my uh, my second book. So look for that. All right. Uh, do we need to already know how to surf in order to participate in your conference? No, like 80% at least of the people who've gone to surfing sales have never surfed before. And it's like part of the attraction for them. It's like something that they want to learn how to do. So absolutely not. Fantastic. Count me in. Scott, thank you so, so much. This was a blast. All right, Jill. Talk to you later. Well, there you have it. Scott Lease, ladies and gentlemen. Focus on what you do and be the best. Be open to talking to anyone. And work from a point of pure honesty and pure passion, and that'll take you a long way. If you want to learn more about Scott, find him on LinkedIn, Scott Lease, L-E-E-S-E, or online at scottleaseconsulting.com. You can check out his book, Addicted to the Process, on Amazon, waiting for his next one to come out in a few months here, or go learn to surf and to sell, and learn more about that at surfandsales.com. If you liked the podcast, please, please, please leave us a review, subscribe, do what you gotta do, let us know, and we'll keep making more of these. If you didn't like the podcast, well, why don't you just tweet me or hit me up on Instagram at alubarsky2 on all those channels and let's talk about it. Happy selling.